yes, sometimes there are bad developers, but maybe, just maybe, it may be the entrepreneur simply because they don't know the processes, they don't know the lingo, they don't understand the technology. And so they make mistakes that to us, the technology people are obvious, but to them, they're not. I'm Kelly Hoey, host of Broadmic. I speak with the most accomplished entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders about the issues that matter in building a business. You will get the inspiration as well as the picks and shovels you need to become a better entrepreneur. Be inspired, take action, think broad. Have you ever been guilty of committing the following mistakes? Thinking that you could start a company if only you could find a developer? Hiring a developer? Your aunt's cousin's nephew because he's cheap? Taking a hands-off approach to managing your developer team? Then you need to listen to today's guest, Nellie Yusupova, the CTO for Web Girls and founder of TechSpeak for Entrepreneurs, a boot camp for founders. After a decade of hearing complaints from founders about how they were being ripped off by developers, Nellie designed the boot camp with the interests of the non-technical founder in mind. Today, Nellie will talk about the biggest roadblocks new founders face when building their product. She will share a clear and detailed roadmap for how to build great product, talk about the four most common mistakes made by founders, why she's an advocate for the agile approach to product development, and how embracing failure can lead to success. Finally, Nellie shares her secret sauce, a seven-step how-to guide to building world-class product. Keep listening to learn how avoiding these costly mistakes can help you save precious capital and put you on the road to becoming a more confident and successful entrepreneur. So how did you become the CTO of uh, Web Girls? That's a really interesting story, actually. <laughs> um, I found we- I found Web Girls by accident through my school. I was studying computer science and needed to get a professional job in my field. Web Girls was the first job that I found, and it was, to my shock, a very entrepreneurial space, which I've never been exposed to. I've always wanted to be- work in a big company, and. Uh, I found Web Girls. I loved the energy of it, and that entrepreneurial spirit just gripped me from from the very beginning. It was a small team. Everything was exciting. Uh, lots of stuff happening. This was early '90s, and the internet was like this big new thing. Uh, so I just loved working at it. I was one of the early employees, and because it was such a small team, I learned all the facets of technology, of everything you need to do in a startup. And I was forced to learn so quickly. They, they have this analogy of sink or swim. So <laughs> they threw me in the ocean and I had to swim really, really hard and learn really quickly. And what I found, because it was a small team and a couple of people left, I ended up running the tech department. This was before I even finished college. And everything was all new and exciting. But when I was given an opportunity to go work at a big company, a big financial firm, I had to take it because it was my dream at the time. Like it was, I grew up thinking and dreaming that this is what this is what I need to be doing. And so I went to work for the company. And it was such a stark difference having being exposed to a startup environment where there's so much energy and everything is done quickly and efficiently. The bureaucracy was killing me. The politics was killing me, and just. It was it was just a complete shock to my system. I hated it. So, <laughs> while funny enough, while I was working there, I was still uh, kept in touch with Web Girls and working for them part time and doing things for them. And after about eleven months, they asked me. They gave me the opportunity of a lifetime. I called them. They asked me to come back and be the CTO and run the organization and really build the technology. And that was something that I just couldn't pass up. At 21, I gave I was given an opportunity of a lifetime. I snatched it and never looked back. That's amazing. So for listeners who don't know what Web Girls is, can you just describe sure. what Web Girls is? 
Yeah, WebGirls is a community of professional women who are interested in technology, want to learn how to leverage technology to to become more successful in their careers, in their businesses, in their personal and professional lives. It started in 1995, and it's still in existence. Uh, I'm still the CTO. And the mission of WebGirls is to get women online at the time when the, in 95, there was, the internet was just starting. It was an exciting time, and nobody really knew what skill sets you needed and how do you uh, leverage this new tool and new system of uh, doing things. So WebGirls was there, was formed with six women as, and has grown to over 100 chapters across the country and around the world. Amazing. And where did you study computer science? I studied computer science in Queens College. Fantastic. And was there anything that, you know, in terms of inspired you to um, go into technology, you know, in terms of your background? Well, actually, I grew up in the former Soviet Union in Tajikistan, and I had no access to technology. I never turned on the computer until I went to college. And the reason why I wanted to go into tech, my biggest motivation in the early 90s, like I said, was the web. It was, to me, the great equalizer. It was going to open up so many doors. And I knew that if I went there, even if I knew nothing about it, I would be. I would have a lot of opportunity. I would be able to make money, which was a big thing as an immigrant, that you really want to make money when you finish college. Um, and that was the original motivation. I saw the opportunity, and I knew the web would be really exciting, and I wanted to be a part of it. And what I realized afterwards after being in technology for so many years is as a technology you really as a technology person you really get to shape the future and you're not just sitting on the sidelines because the technology is always at the forefront you get to be a part of that always the new wave of things that's so amazing and that's exactly it like why sit on the sidelines being the focus group or, you know, an early, you know, a beta tester, an early adopter when you can be the person creating the technology. Uh, you're also the founder of TechSpeak. And when did you found that? And what was the reason for doing that? So TechSpeak uh, was an evolution. I was working at WebGirls and I'm still the CTO, as I mentioned. And I got WebGirls to a point where it functions on its own and it doesn't require a lot of my time. All the processes and all of the efficiencies that I teach at TechSpeak, actually, I've implemented at WebGirls. And um, my team is now doing a lot of the work and the support for it, which allowed me to focus in other places. One of the things that I really got interested in is teaching. So I would go out and uh, speak at different conferences and events, and I would put on my own events. And my goal would be to teach entrepreneurs how to use and leverage technology in their businesses. And through that, I heard so many horror stories of entrepreneurs' tech projects getting out of control and the problems that they were having with tech people. It was just unbelievable. Thousands of dollars wasted to technology mistakes. And... What I did is I did some research. I mean, I was I was actually appalled at first at how developers could take advantage of p- the poor business people. Like, how does this happen? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, yes, sometimes there are bad developers. But maybe, just maybe, it may be the entrepreneur simply because they don't know the processes, they don't know the lingo, they don't understand the technology. And so they make mistakes that, to us, the technology people are obvious but to them, they're not. And so after looking around and seeing if there was anyone who was addressing this problem, I couldn't, I couldn't believe that no one was doing it. So um, I was the perfect person in my mind to do it because I was a CTO. I could teach people exactly what I do with my own teams. And, um, and I love teaching. So I could combine those two passions together. It's like, Get smart as an entrepreneur and, and as a non-technical person. Get smart so you can write the, ask the right questions. Absolutely. I think that's the most important thing. I always tell people there's this new meme on the Internet that you must learn how to code. You have to learn how to code to run a tech startup. And I totally disagree with that. It's not realistic for everyone in the world to code. I don't think, I don't think it's a requirement. If you really want to learn how to code, it's great, you know, like go and do it. But it takes a lot of time to become a good coder and a great coder, which is what require, what's required to build a great product. And for most entrepreneurs who are CEOs, they don't need to know how to code. They need to know how to run their business. 
but they need to know enough about the process. They need to know about enough about the lingo so that you can ask the right questions, so that you can be a part of the conversation and not just sitting on the sidelines while all the tech people are making all of your decisions. Technology has to be able to support your business and not the other way around. That, I, I love that statement. You know, technology has to has to be able to support your business. I, I absolutely love that. And I think, yeah, I think you would agree with this, that people need to be tech literate. They do not need to be, you know, experts. But they need to be literate and understand. Um, and as, you know, someone investing in tech, I always say, you know, I, I need the CEO, if they're not technical, to understand what it is, you know, their company is building because that is the product. You know, it's not a widget, it's not a shoe, it's not, you know, the technology. If the technology is what investors are investing in, the CEO had had um, better understand this. What has surprised you um, from teaching tech speak? What has come out of, I mean, how many classes have you done done now over the years? So, so far I've done nine boot camps. Um, we, there are two-day boot camps and they're really intense. We start at 9 in the morning and go to 6 at night, and it's continuous learning, really like a a true boot camp. It's a lot of fun. My guess is you really unlock a lot of, I'm going to say, sort of the the fears, misconceptions, and um, a non-technical person's kind of like boost their confidence that they can now... Talk, talk to a technologist. Yes, absolutely. One, my, one of my biggest drivers to continue to do tech speak, I mean, to teach for two straight days is really tough. But what, and then I'll, I'll describe the very first one that I did. It took me a lot longer to create the boot camps, the actual content than I thought. And I literally, on the day of the event at 7 a.m., so the, the event would start at 8, at 7 a.m., I just got my booklets. The, my, the, the book, the tech speak book that I give out as a resource. So I stayed up two days in a row, pulled all-nighters, didn't sleep for two days, came and I taught for 18 hours, two days in a row, and I was not tired. I, I, was, I was really, really surprised by that because I knew I was meant to do this. And, that, and what was driving me is seeing this emotion, the the releases of fear that I saw just throughout the two days. The entrepreneur comes in one way and comes out completely transformed. And I believe it's because of this, this fear that they have of the black box. Right, the fear of the unknown. When you don't know something, you you fear it because it's a mystery to you. Everything seems super complicated and impossible. But when I demystify the entire process for you from beginning to end, and that's my goal, is to show you the entire picture, and all of a sudden you see in a crystal clear way how things work, you just feel so empowered and relieved, frankly, that... You now know how to do this, and it's not that hard. I, I could t- I could talk to someone on this subject. <laughs> um, one of the concepts that comes up so often in the startup community is failing and failing fast. And what does that in in your thoughts as a CTO and as a founder? What are your thoughts on failing and failing fast? Well, the concept of fail early, fail often, and fail cheap is a part of the lean startup movement and is at the core of my development process. I really believe in it. Um, so here's what it means. What it means that instead of spending a lot of time on building one big idea, you take that big idea and you break it into smaller experiments that you can test very quickly and learn whether something is going to work or not. So if the experiment worked, it was a success, awesome. Keep doing it, right? Keep doubling down on that idea. But if the experiment failed, here's the amazing thing. You didn't spend a lot of time and you didn't spend a lot of money doing this thing, right? You actually figured out what, that it's not going to work a lot sooner. And the idea behind failing early and failing cheap is iterating through this experimentation and course correcting early and often. 
And iterating, the, the next question that people always ask me is, what's the difference between iterating and failing fast and early and cheap? And they really mean the same thing. But I insist on using the failing fast, failing early, and failing cheap because I want entrepreneurs to reframe their relationship with failure. I want them to think of failure as a learning opportunity and free themselves from the grippling emotional effects that you usually have when it comes to fear. Because when there's fear of failure, when there's failure in your business and you're emotionally charged as a result, you can't make decisions. And that's the most critical time to make a good decision, right? And the deal is, when, when there is a failure, there's usually an opportunity. And if you're emotionally charged, you can't see that opportunity. So I always teach entrepreneurs to make, have a relationship with failure and understand that it can fuel you to success one experiment at a time. Say so calling a spade a spade, right? Why call it iteration when it's exactly, failure? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I'm going to get you more unstuck if we call it what it is. Um, yeah, and you, you, you start to become okay with it because you know that it's a good thing. It's, not, it's getting you to the path of success. The key is to not make the same mistake twice, right? So if you make a mistake and you learn from it, the first time it's okay because you've learned for it, from it and it made you a better person, a better company or um, got you to success a little bit uh, closer. But if you make the same mistakes and fail the same way over and over again, then that's a problem. Yeah, that's that's an obsession. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I was thinking about with your the the terminology that you're using and saying, you know, let's just you know fail early, fail cheaply, you know, all of this is, you know, if there is something that's that's really obsessing you, like figure it out. And it may be that I'm obsessing on something that I should just get over. Absolutely, I I think that the biggest opportunity that the lean startup experimentation type of philosophy and mentality allows you to do is to uh, have a scientific experiment, right? And every scientific experiment can be proven true or false. You have to have a metric, a success metric of how, how, how are you going to make sure that this idea or how are you going to measure that this idea is going to be successful or not? And there's a time frame that you have to test and usually it's not indefinitely like in most startups. I'm going to work on this until I figure it out versus I'm going to work on this for three weeks and I'm going to do everything and these are the things that I'm going to do and this better have an impact. Otherwise, maybe this is not the right direction. Absolutely. Staying on this whole idea of failing uh, and obsessing on things um, and not being able to get over failures, what would you say are the top handful, three, four, whatever, a handful of mistakes that entrepreneurs make? Well, I think the first one is falling in love with your idea. We all have our ideas and we love them because we came up with them, right? And the longer they percolate in our minds, the longer we think about them, the more in, if we, we invest into building them, the better they become. They become our babies, Right, and that's the wrong way to approach it. Um, the big problem with that type of approach is that your potential customers might not agree with you. They may not have that problem. They may not even be willing to pay for your solution. And an even bigger problem is that you didn't even ask them. Right, you didn't validate the idea. And that's why I always say, and this is very hard for developers or technical people to do. Like they want to, they have this tendency to jump straight into code. Like we have this idea, let's code it. Let's spend a weekend and just do it, right? And I always tell people before you write a line of code, you have to be able to really understand the problem. And the reason why you do that is so that it's not that your idea is completely bad, but how do you refine it so that it's exactly what the customer needs? And that's the whole point of uh, validating and doing customer development, getting out of the building, like Steve jo uh, Steve Blank says. What other? I, I, that is like that. I, that would be the one. I've, if every entrepreneur would solve that problem of falling in love, um, what other mistakes do entrepreneurs make? Uh, well, the second mistake that I hear over and over again is um, getting a developer to write code too quickly. 
So you have an idea, and then I get a call and say, Nelly, I need a developer so we can start writing code. And in the process that I teach, writing code is actually step number seven. Okay, what, what's, the, what's the six steps before then, other than get over it, your idea, you know, isn't the only great one in the, in the world, you know, stop being in love with it, it's kind of ugly. Other than that is one of those, what are the other lessons? <laughs> so the first one is validate, that uh, we just discussed. The second one is prototype. So before you write code, you have to build a prototype. Uh, and the prototype is a visual blueprint of your app. And basically shows the, your potential customers how it works. And it's very realistic. And no, you don't need to be a developer to create one. This is the most fun session at TechSpeak where I teach entrepreneurs how to create a prototype. And it's and like when they realize how easy it is. And it's just amazing, like that transformation. Like, I can do this now. You don't need to know how to write code. But you can create realistic uh, prototypes that you can then in step number three, show your potential customers so that you can work out all the different kinks. And with, like with my last startup that I consulted with, we had to go through three solutions before we got it right. And that's the one that we built. But think about the amount of time and money and energy that it would take to recode an actual application rather than uh, redo a prototype, which is you just can't compare. So that's the third step. The fourth, the fourth step is where you can hire a developer if you don't want one, but not for coding. They, you, you need them to go into the fifth step, which is to pick the best technology. And the goal is so you work with them, you help, uh, help them understand what you're trying to build and help them pick or have them help you pick what are the best tools. What do you need to custom code versus uh, use some third-party apps or APIs and whatever else is out there, right? What do you use so that you can launch as quickly as possible? Because so this is this is like getting the uh, uh, developer as sort of a, a consultant who looks at your prototype and says, okay, based on this, you could go this route, this route, or this route. Here's the pros and cons of each. Exactly. Here's the pros and cons today when you launch. Here's the pros and cons six 10 months from now, if you want to do this. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Absolutely. Got it. So you hire a developer to, to, to really advise you on how you should be thinking about the technology and what are all the different tools that you'll need. And then based on that, you can actually create a budget, right? So you'll know and understand how much things will cost. And the sixth step is where you determine what's your minimum viable product. So you created a prototype for your entire idea, but you're not going to build the entire thing. You're going to take the minimum amount of feature sets that can still provide value to your customers, and that's what you're going to build. So you work with your developer to figure out how can we break this down into a small project that we can launch really quickly. And then we go to step number seven, is which is where you write the actual code. So if you do all the steps, I mean, literally, they will save you thousands of dollars because you don't have to recode, you don't have to fix stuff, you really understand how to build things the correct way the first time. So that's why your top, in terms of your top mistakes that entrepreneurs make, that number two is getting into a developer into quickly, because if you haven't done all those other things before, you know, you, you pull in the developer, you know, you, you're wasting time and money. Absolutely. And have not having thought it through. Absolutely. And by the way, if you want to learn the rest of the steps, I actually have a free class that I created online that people can take. And, you know, um, we're going we're gonna to put that information yes. in the show notes for this because that's exactly the kind of thing that, thank you. Um, all right, what else? What other mistakes do, uh, this could, you know. Yeah. Clear, yeah. <laughs> Get depressed, kids. We're going to pull out more mistakes. Yeah. So the third mistake, the third big mistake is um, when the founder, so you're ready to do the development, you created all the specs, you hand them off to the developer, and then you check out. You trust them to do the rest, all, make all the decisions, and just build it for you, right? So you have this hands-off approach, and it's a recipe for disaster. I can't... I just can't say that enough. You have to uh, stay involved because sometimes the directions you give are unclear. New questions come up all the time as you start to actually write the code and, and, and get into the weeds of things. Uh, maybe your developer misunderstood something that you said, right? And if they make all of the 
take all of the misunderstandings and develop how they think it should be, when they're done, when you finally check back in, you will find that something, most of the things, are not like you envisioned. And I'm, I'm like pausing and, and, and thinking about this. Part of this strikes me as I say to people, I think at one point we had a relationship um, with what needed to be done with technology and our relationship with developers, I would say akin to a plumber. I need the sink fixed. I need a sink put in over here, right? When we thought, think of it as this, um, just like a task um, or, you know, hey, I just, you know, just go off and do it kind of thing, as opposed to saying, no, the relationship with technology and a relationship with a developer is a creative, collaborative. It's not just, here's the roadmap, you know, put the sink in the corner to stay with a plumber analogy, but this is a creative collaboration, and you need to think about how you're going to work with someone um, in that creative, collaborative way. Otherwise, as you're saying, you know, this, hey, yeah, just go off and do it is just, it's disrespectful, and it's not going to produce what you want. Absolutely. And, and we earlier talked about failing early and failing often and failing cheap, right? What we want to be able to do as a startup is we're constantly learning, right? And if you if it takes you three months to six months to build something and you, you're totally not involved with what the product is doing, maybe you already need to be course correcting and your developer is still building the thing that you told them to build. So what I teach at TechSpeak is agile development. And what this allows you to do is to take this big project and break it up into smaller, smaller projects or sprints. And they're at most two weeks. And in two weeks you will be able to have working code that you can test. And the magic thing is that if you discover that something is wrong, something wasn't done correctly, you didn't think about a problem correctly, you can fix it because you didn't spend a lot of time and energy and money working on this project, right? It's only been two weeks. And so the goal is to really understand and catch mistakes earlier, see the red flags faster so that you can minimize mistakes because there's no such thing as we're not going to make mistakes, right? Like I make mistakes all the time. The key is to really see the red flags, to see and stop things from going wrong before they get out of control. Right, when they go really expensively and, you know, Big problem um, sideways. Um, what's your last on sort of mistakes and no-nos that, you know, you warn, warn entrepreneurs about? So the, the last thing I'll warn entrepreneurs about is hiring someone cheap, right? Hiring your aunt's cousin's son who is in college full-time but can get you the app developed really cheap. Uh, it happens more often than you think. You're like, like you're thinking to yourself, who does this? It's like, oh yeah, people do it all the time. I mean, they, some of these, some of these startups do it when they're, you know, my past life as a lawyer. Some of them do it with lawyers. Oh yeah, someone's brother is whatever, and you're like, they're not a startup lawyer. They do real estate. What what what? They're you know, a, a marriage you know, and, and divorce lawyer. What like what what do you do in hiring them to do your startup? <laughs> seed round documentation. Well, in startups, money is always tight. So it's understandable that you want to save money. But I would encourage entrepreneurs to think about how much money are you actually saving when you're hiring someone and then you have to redo it all over the next time. And it's not done correctly. And if you become successful, things just don't work. Right. So like that that's just not a right approach. You should hire professionals. You should hire people who know and have processes, which, uh, you know, like you could have the best developers, but if you don't know how to manage them, you still will be unsuccessful. So you have to have process. You have to have professionalism and you have to have people who have done something. Don't hire uh, someone who's never done app development if uh, if just because they're a developer. Right. You have to have professionals who have had experience building something uh, build that for you. Which what you're saying brings up um, something that is so important in um, anyone starting a business, and that's having mentors. Um, But for you, what's your thought um, in terms of why mentors are so important? 
Well, I think mentors are the most valuable resource that you can tap into because every entrepreneur will have knowledge gaps and it's a way for you to tap into the experience of someone, someone's um, running a startup or whatever issue that you're having, right? And, and a lot of entrepreneurs, don't, not enough entrepreneurs take advantage of mentorship and find someone that they can learn from all the time. And the one caveat I'll say about mentorship is there's a difference between an advisor versus a mentor versus a consultant, Go through that because I think that's a very important distinction in terms of who's a mentor, who's an advisor, who's a consultant, and how and when you need and should use each. So I think that the beauty of today's world is it's really uh, it's really easy to find people who can help you, right? So the first thing in order to get a mentor or advisor or a consultant is to understand really where you need the knowledge. Where is your knowledge gap? So first you need to, as a person, to understand that so you can find the right person. And then I think a mentor is someone that you turn to um, on one or two times a month on something that can be dealt with through a quick email. You have to be sensitive to their time. They're usually running their own companies or are very busy people. So you don't want to take advantage of them and if you want some advice, it has to be quick and infrequent. Um, if you do have to turn to a person frequently and the answers or the help it will take hours to do, um, the first thing you can do is turn that mentor into a formal board of advisor and compensate them, not necessarily with money, but maybe some stock or stock options, whatever it is that you want, but compensate them. And if that person isn't willing or can't, then you can hire an advisor or a consultant who can actually formally help you and you can pay them, compensate them for the time. I think key on all this, is, and as, you, as you said, is like it's knowing what you need, like knowing what is the information you need advice on? What is the answer that you need? And then respecting people's time and understanding at some point, if this gets snowballs into something bigger... You know, this is out of fairness. I need to I need to compensate or formalize in some way. Um, That's a really great, you know, kind of waterfall um, um, way of thinking about it. Um, What's next for What's next for TechSpeak? So the next step for TechSpeak is to take it online, make it accessible to people who just can't make it to our real world events. Uh, the boot camps are amazing. The energy in them is is uncomparative to what I can do online. But uh, there are people who just can't take the time off or travel or they, they, they spend the entire weekend because they either have kids or other issues. And this has been the number one feedback that I've been getting from people. So I'm going to preach what I teach and listen to the feedback and create uh, my first product and Hopefully, in about a month, it'll launch. That's fantastic. Well, you also raise in, in answering that. You also, you know, raise an interesting point. You know, go back to our conversation on mentorship. That when we think of mentors and and in particular, we're always thinking about someone with more experience, and we're thinking, you know, maybe someone with you know gray hair or you know if they've already had three companies, but. What you experience in TechSpeak is this peer mentorship and, and how that is so important for entrepreneurs to be um, learning and relying on their peers. Absolutely. I can't state that enough. You shouldn't ever be doing things on your own or in isolation because when you're doing something in isolation, you can't bounce off ideas. You can't be as creative. You can't be as as quick to get from point A to point B. And so surrounding yourself with peers who are going through the same thing, who can take you, talking about uh, depressing moments, right, and really hard moments in a startup's life, which happens to everybody, those are the types of people who can pull you out. You can share experiences. You can learn from what are the things that they're going through and how does that apply to me? How can I not make the mistakes that they're making? And so um, I totally agree with you. Sometimes you can learn a lot from uh, your kids, right? <laughs> and how they're so blasé and happy all the time and 
a lot of people I know say that they learn a ton from their kids. And the kids really, it, you know, if you're learning from someone, maybe they are your mentor. And maybe you should be learning a lot on how to approach life uh, from from their perspective and grab some of their creativity and how they just they just love and light and and laugh all the time. So well, I'm I'm, know, la- I'm 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 laughing when you're saying that answer because I'm thinking there's that um, leadership and team building exercise, the Marshmallow Tower, where they give you you know 17 pieces of spaghetti and a yard of string and a you know, um, a marshmallow and you have to build the f- tallest tower you can in, you know, 18 minutes or something like this. And it's been done so many times they've studied it. And as a result of these studies, there's two groups who do this better than anybody else. Engineers, and you're thank, thank you know, whoever, thank you, thank you that engineers know how to do this well because, you know, they're the ones building bridges and and <laughs> buildings and I'm really glad engineers can do this and build these high towers. Um, the other group that does it extraordinarily well, like bet, like almost as good as the engineers, children. children. Yeah, for the record, the worst at it are MBAs. Recent, <laughs> MBA, recent MBA grads are the worst at it, but, you know, we can save that for another, another podcast. Um, I have some questions that have been from listeners of uh, the podcast, and so I want to kind of make sure that it's not just what I'm interested in, what Nellie is doing in TechSpeak and Web Girls, but, you know, real questions from um, listeners of the podcast. So one question from a startup founder in an early stage, and they're currently outsourcing development. And their question is, do they structure, you know, on structuring the contract, is it, should it be hourly or project basis? Um, thoughts on when, when working with outsourced development? So um, I outsource development as well. I have teams all across the world. And I think the number one thing to outsource successfully is to have your process is to really understand how are you going to structure the communication. And the, the, the process that I teach at TechSpeak, it becomes super important because you need to be able to create, if, you are, if you're going to be an agile startup, a lean and agile startup, this back-and-forth communication and constant adjustments. So um, the, whether or not you need to be charging per hour or per project all depends on how you structure your development process, your project management process. If you're using Agile project management, which I would highly recommend that you do, then you can um, you can pay them per sprint, right? And so, and and you only pay and release payment on the deliverable and when you have tested the code. And so, instead of doing the hourly where it's very hard to keep track of hours, you could charge people per sprint. And there's a fixed fee and you know what goes into it and you all agree on what's going to be done in that sprint. If you do decide to do per hour, you need to be able to have them use a time tracker so that um, they can punch in when they're working and punch out when they're not working. And then you just have to trust them, right? It, the, the trust factor is, has to be really high and if you do have a lot of trust with your developers, it's not a problem. There's, In fact, I have a couple of developers that I work with where I do pay them per hour. And we have a very trusting relationship. I've been working with them for years. And I know that they're not um, conning me or trying to ra- uh, roll on more hours than, than necessary. So it really depends on the relationship with the developer and how you structure your project management process. And I would also think it, part of it when I'm reading into this this question is part of this is like like knowing what is being produced and really understanding what it takes to get there so that you could say if if a developer said to you, oh, this should take, you know, two hours, you with your experience would know, well, yeah, that should take two hours. Um, but that's so so loose, right? And, and I think the kind of one of those things also reading this, this might lead back to your mistakes entrepreneurs make is, oh, I'm going to pay them hourly because it'll be cheaper. Well, the the key here is we talked about prototyping and wireframing uh, earlier as part of the process. When you prototype and you wireframe, the key there is to actually agree how you're going to build something. 
Because when someone says it's going to take two hours, the answer could be yes or it could be absolutely no because it all depends on how you did, how you agree it's going to be implemented. So it's really important to have those conversations and use your prototypes and, uh, and annotate them and actually pull together requirements of how certain things should be built and what technology you're going to be using to build them. Any recommendations is a question from a non-technical founder on, on favorite resources um, about addressing fears when managing technical teams? So, <laughs> like, <we're>, yeah. <laughs> Take tech speak. Yeah, I tell you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I think, honestly, there is so much information out there. Uh, the number one thing that you have to say in order to, to yourself in order to get over the fear is that I, I'm going to, like, it's okay for me to know technology. The first thing that... Um, the first thing that I hear from entrepreneurs, if they're non-technical, is, oh, I don't do tech stuff. I'm not a tech person, right? And if you have that kind of attitude, then you're never going to want to learn technology. And it's important, like we talked about, to know the basics and to know the lingo. And um, there's lots of blogs and podcasts and classes like TechSpeak. There's just so much out there. You should pick the type of person you want to learn from. And just go and learn it because it's not rocket science. It's only fearful because there's a black box there that you just don't know about. And once you learn the basics, you'll you'll see that it's not hard. And and if yeah, sort of sort of one of those things. What I'm thinking in my mind is like understand what your fear is. Is your fear because you don't know technology? Well, there's resources from TechSpeak to Skill Crush to you know. You know, go and yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Go, you know, go and pick up one of the kids' apps that's teaching you know kids how to code. You may, if, you know, if you don't want to, <laughs> if you really want to get comfortable with it, bright colors on an iPad, uh, doing some visual coding, and whatever, get comfortable with tech, the technology, and what and what you're dealing with. If it's then you can decide what's your what's your fears. Your fear of managing people. Well, there's shelves and downloads and blogs and all sorts of things on how you how you can manage people um, more effectively. Um, just in case someone doesn't know this, because we do have a question, what is front-end and what is back-end? So front-end, so if you think of the web as the middle piece, the front-end is what is what's being, what the front-end is what works in the browser. So a lot of the interactions that happen, that's the front end. The back end is what happens on the server. And there are some back end programming languages that only work on the server, like PHP and Python Python and Ruby on Rails. And then there is front end languages like HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And um, a lot of the rich interactions and all of the interactions that happen are done by the front-end developers. And the actual coding that interacts with databases is done on the back-end with back-end developers. Well, I'm, I'm pausing in and, and, and looking at you on this one because this is where I think right now why technology should be so much more exciting and why uh, in terms of a, as a career and something to pursue because the front end has become so creative and rich and, you know, I don't want to say interesting. I mean, you know, I was in college in, you know, the 80s. Computer programming in the 80s was not pretty exciting looking stuff from a <laughs> design aesthetic. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, but for now, like thinking about it now is in, in terms of uh, someone saying, I don't want to know this. Why wouldn't you want to know how to do really creative front-end development and be able to create that beautiful visual stuff yourself? Absolutely. And like uh, the difference between now, now versus the 90s is back in the 90s, the JavaScript developers weren't even considered developers. Like the real developers would always make fun of the JavaScript developers and say, that's not a, that's not a real language. Versus now, JavaScript developers are prized. They're the prize, the most prized commodity because there's so much of the work that happens on the front end in the browser. And JavaScript 
is the only language that actually creates those rich interactions in a browser. And you have to write really efficient JavaScript code because everything gets rendered in the browser when you load the page. So it's really, really important as a, t- as a job to have really efficient JavaScript developers now. They're like, it's a thing now. How the world has changed, <laughs> how uh, the world um, has changed. Here's an interesting question. You've made a point about no drive-by networking. What are the best practices you've seen out there for entrepreneurs um, with respect to networking and, and in particular in terms of seeking mentorship or seeking to engage with developers? Well, I think uh, building relationships um, is, is the key here. A lot of people go to a networking event and they just hand out cards. They, and, and you take the card and you haven't really introduced yourself and, and, and just already I already have a, a bunch of your cards. I, I think that's a very wrong way to approach networking. You should never give a card to someone until you've had at least three minutes of conversations with them so that the person can actually remember you when they're looking at your card the next day. And over time, what you want to do is build relationships with that person, send them resources, say hi, have coffee with them, whatever, right, so that they actually know who you are. And when you're asking them for stuff, they are much more willing to uh, respond. And it's always a give, 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 and then get relationship. Um, I one of the things that I always advise entrepreneurs when they ask me, like, where can I find developers? Like, <laughs> right? Like, it's, this is the biggest question. Um, I, I, I always have people at TechSpeak promise me one of the things they promise is that the next week after TechSpeak, they'll go to a, a technical meetup. So if you are looking for develop or JavaScript developers, let's say, go to a JavaScript meetup. You may not understand a word that's being said there, but you are in the room. You're starting to get to know some of the people there. And again, just don't be the freak, right? Just learn who the people are, get their names, and build a relationship with them. Because those people, even though they may not be looking for opportunities, they will be the best advisors for you. Uh, if you're looking for someone to vet your your junior hires, for example, like this is a place where you can tap into knowledge, but you can't do that until you actually build a relationship. Well, because it, it, I think particularly with developers who are uh, in, in in a time right now where they are so in demand, there is something so completely unseemly of of people just oh you're a developer, you know, and thrusting the card in their face. It's like. This happens to these people all the time. Like, go and be considerate. Get in their world. Get in their mindset through understanding what technology and what it really takes to build this app of yours that you only think is going to take an hour. Uh, Understand what the issues are that concern them and understand who they are because even though if they have the skill set that you need, you may not be the personality and the person you want to work with. Absolutely. So. Sensible, sensible, sensible advice. All right. We do a pay it forward Q&A session that I want to run through with you. Some quick answers, what comes top of mind. Um, And so here we go. What are your go-to sources of information you use every day? So Twitter. Um, I'm on Twitter a lot. Um, I have lists that I've set up for people that I want to follow and want to make sure that I don't miss information from them. And the other tool that I use religiously is Feedly. It's an RSS reader. And instead of going to thousands of blogs of people that I want to follow, I subscribe to their uh, RSS feeds in my RSS reader. And I get all of the stuff coming in to me so that I can keep in touch with all the people that I'm interested in keeping in touch with. I love Feedly. Uh, How do you discover new information? Okay, I, I'm a part of a lot of groups. Um, I like to go to networking events. Um, I love to listen to podcasts. My two favorites are This Week in Startups and This Week in Tech. Oh, and, okay, and Broad Mike will be now your third favorite podcast. And Broad Mike, of course. <laughs> um, and another one that I love, um, it's just so different, is the TED Radio Hour. Um, this is where they get 
uh, a, a topical discussion from the riveting TED speakers, and they there's a there's a topic, and those five tech usually about five of them talk on the specific topic and they're just amazing very entertaining and educational well it's like one of those great things it's like you know why we ask that question like where do you go for new sources of information because sometimes you got to like get out of your own head and get out of your own way what book are you reading who reads anymore <laughs> <laughs> which blog yeah. well well actually um I listen to books, so I'm always on the go if I'm working out or doing something. And one of the reasons why I love running now is because I get to listen to stuff. Um, the last book that I listened to was Made to Stick. It's an amazing book, highly recommended, and it's all about why some ideas stick and others don't. Really fascinating. That sounds that sounds like a good one. So Sarah, our executive producer at Broadmic, thinks we should be talking more about AI. What's the conversation you think we should be having? Virtual reality. All right. Well, let's get that on the list. Who are the people that most influenced you in your career? I think there's too many to list. What I uh, what I do usually, and which is which is what I recommend in the podcast, is really understand the knowledge gaps that I have. And that is the driving factor of who I'm going to turn to to learn, whether it's someone in technical or someone in business or someone completely unrelated to technology. Um, you need to be able to grow as a human being, and every single experience really helps you grow. And so that's how I approach things. Self-awareness is key. What is the best advice you ever received? Life is a journey and not a destination. It was from a friend of mine, and... I think it's so valuable because we're always doing this thing and the next, and we just don't slow down enough to smell the roses and enjoy our winnings and successes. And so, life is a journey. I, I have that on my wall that I look I look at all the time in front Rem- of me. Remind ourselves yes. of that. What makes your work fun and rewarding? It's simple, seeing people excited as a result of a conversation that we had or when they take my boot camp and they feel completely transformed, it just fuels me and just gives me the energy to keep moving. That's fantastic. What do you reach for in your closet when you want to feel bold and confident? Well, (laughs) I never want my clothes uh, to be the first thing that people notice. And it's all about the information that I give. It's about me and my personality. So I... Always try to look professional um, and good, I guess, but the focus is not that. The focus is really on uh, me and what can I bring to the conversation. And how do you pay it forward for women? Um, I think through Web Girls. Uh, we have another site called Fromina. Uh, it's an interesting news resource f- where we highlight women, uh, what women, what amazing things women are doing around the world. Um, and TechSpeak. It's all about empowerment and inspiration for me. How, what's, the, what's the ratio in TechSpeak of male, men and women taking TechSpeak? 60 women and 40 men. Awesome. Yes. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Broad Mike. We welcome your feedback. Find us on Facebook, where you will have show notes and additional references for a deeper dive into today's topic. Subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode. Please review our podcast on iTunes, which will help other listeners discover BroadMic and grow the BroadMic community. BroadMic is produced by Christy Mirabel with editing by John Marshall Media. Our executive producer is Sarah Weinheimer. Think Broad.